Hey there, language lovers. Shannon Kennedy here, along with my co-host, Benny Lewis, for a new episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. We're chatting with Sarah Maria Haspen, a polyglot who has a diverse language resume covering everything from Korean to Nicaraguan Sign Language. In this episode, we discuss choosing which language to learn, learning languages in diverse language families, dialect and accent in sign languages, living in different countries and learning the languages, the differences between a polyglot and a linguist, why fluency doesn't need to be the end goal for language learning, and extreme language learning techniques. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast or the podcast in general, you can let us know at languagehacking.com slash review. We appreciate hearing from you and your reviews help other language learners like yourself find the podcast as well as let us know what you enjoy most about the podcast. All of the links, resources, and everything else mentioned in this episode are available to you as a part of the podcast show notes. Now let's get into our conversation with Sarah. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 69. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. My name is Shannon Kennedy, and I'm here as always with Benny Lewis. And today we are talking to Sarah Maria Haspan, also known as Miss Linguistic, who is a polyglot who studied a wide range of languages, everything from European languages to Asian languages to several sign languages as well. So we're just going to get right into the interview. Sarah, how did you get into language learning? Oh, well, I guess it's a, it's a long story, but the very beginning of my language learning journey, I guess I would say, was growing up in the United States monolingual to a family that was not monolingual. So my father and my mother both spoke Spanish. My father is a native Spanish speaker. My mom is a native English speaker, but learned Spanish while she was living in Mexico. And I was surrounded by other languages as a child, as well as hearing languages outside of the home. I was living in a suburb of San Francisco where a lot of Tagalog was spoken and a lot of Cantonese was spoken. Um, but in our household, we only used English. So, and I think the, the decisions behind that were really just that it was easier. You know, I was learning, I was growing up in a very English speaking environment and uh, all my friends at school spoke English. And my father actually told me something later after many years of me basically giving him a lot of, you know, crap, excuse my French, um, but for not speaking Spanish with me. And he told me that, you know, when you're raising a kid and Shannon can probably empathize with this, you have so many fights every day with, you know, bedtimes and, you know, whether or not you get a second helping of dessert and he just didn't want to have another fight with me about the language that we were using. It was more important to him that we preserved our relationship. And so he's just figured, you know, we're living in the United States. English is probably going to be fine. Um, so I really empathize a lot now with that position. But of course, once I started to get into languages, I, I did, um, you know, tell my parents, why didn't you make me learn Spanish? You know, why didn't I get this language as a freebie? Um, so I started learning Spanish in high school. And I think my experience is probably very similar to the experience of a lot of other people that go into language learning or polyglottery in that I did not have a natural talent for language learning whatsoever. I still don't consider myself to be talented at it. And I think it's because I really struggled 
with learning languages that I had to develop strategies for it. And also that I developed an appreciation for it. You know, I, I actually know a lot of people that are very talented at learning languages and have pretty much no desire to do so because to them, it's not an exotic or a cool thing because it's just something that they do naturally. So I think I was, you know, when I look back on my experience, I actually think I was very lucky to have struggled with language learning because it gave me this passion now and this enjoyment that I get out of learning new languages. And um, that was like the beginning, but how did things develop and how did you decide which languages to expand into? So I definitely started with Spanish because mostly because, frankly, I look like a Spanish speaker and it was really embarrassing to go around in the U.S. and constantly be approached by Spanish speakers and not be able to answer to them. I felt like my identity didn't really match my you know, linguistic abilities. So I had to get Spanish down first. Um, and that took me probably around 10 years, frankly, to become fluent in Spanish. But after that, after I finally gained the ability and after many years of thinking that it wasn't going to be possible... Um, then I kind of got excited about learning everything else that I could. And I realized that with every language that I learned, I gained so much insight into new cultures and into new ways of thinking. So from there, right after Spanish, I learned French. And I think that's a, a very common progression because the languages are very related. And of course, I got very cocky after that because it's super easy to learn another romance language once you've learned the first. After that, I was in university and I started majoring in linguistics. And as a major in linguistics, you're required to choose a language that is non-Indo-European, so a language that is very unsimilar to English. And I was choosing between Chinese and Korean, uh, but Chinese was at 2 p.m. in the afternoon and Korean was at 9 a.m. in the morning. And as a college student, I was definitely not getting up before 10 a.m. So I chose Chinese at that point. And that was definitely a big turning point in my life. That was the Chinese became a really big part of my life, both professionally and personally. And from there, I think I just got really excited about, oh, wow, if I learn a language that's really dissimilar to the other languages that I've learned, I get so many more insights into the way that people think and the way that people carve up the world. I started studying psycholinguistics, which is how language informs the brain and vice versa. And every time I learned a new language, I felt like I gained new insight into cognitive procedures and what is universal and what isn't. And so from there, I started, I dabbled in a little bit of Arabic, um, I did a little bit of Korean, I started learning sign languages, um, started with American Sign Language, and then Nicaraguan Sign Language, and then a little bit of Costa Rican and Spanish sign languages. And yeah, from there, I basically just made it a habit to try to expand my horizons as much as possible by learning languages in completely different language families. So I made a similar jump from European languages to Chinese as well. And one of the questions that I often hear about taking a step like that is those languages are so different. So how do you handle learning languages in such different language families? Yeah, I think in some ways it's easier, right? Because you're not getting any interference from other languages. So when you start in a completely new language, you're not getting the same kind of interference from uh, false cognates or other, other words that sound very similar to each other, but have slightly, slightly different meanings. So in that way, it's really helpful. Um, in terms of learning a brand new language with a structure that's totally unfamiliar, learning linguistics really was super helpful for me because just learning the names and the labels for certain concepts. So, for example, learning the word evidentials or learning that Korean and Turkish have this linguistic feature called evidentials. 
um, helped me later when I then came, came across that feature when I was learning Korean. I had already had a name for this concept and I already had a way to sort of manipulate it in my head. So it wasn't a brand new concept to me. So I really, I highly recommend if people are interested in learning languages that they, that they try out, you know, an intro to linguistics course on, on Udemy or you know, any of these online courses that they can find because it just gives you a structure for understanding the, the different ways that languages can be set up and the different ways that they carve up the world. So that's your, your, your core linguistics background, but how did your uh, psycholinguistics uh, come into play in your language learning? So I took this amazing course in college, um, developmental psychology, with a woman that became uh, a huge mentor for me. And she was doing research in uh, Nicaraguan Sign Language. And I'll give you a quick background on Nicaraguan Sign Language. Basically, it's one of the youngest languages in the world. It's now at this point, maybe around 40 or 50 years old. And the reason why we were studying it was not so much because it's an exotic sign language, but because of that youth. Because languages actually, just like babies, change much faster when they're young. So if you want to study grammatical change, you want to study a young language because it's changing really fast. And you can see in real time how grammars tend to change. And you can draw, you can extrapolate um, trends from that and understandings about why language changes and how it changes. So that's really what got me into sign languages um, to work in that lab of course, a lab that was doing research on the sign language attracted a lot of sign language users. So a lot of the other people in the lab were deaf. So the main languages of that lab were American Sign Language and English. So I learned a ton of language just through immersion and then did a lot of travel to Nicaragua as well to do research on Nicaraguan Sign Language. And then later we ended up doing studies that were comparing the language Nicaraguan Sign Language to other sign languages. And so I had the most amazing opportunity to go into new communities and find the deaf communities there and then learn a little bit about their language so that I could then include that in the research that we were doing and compare the similarities and the differences. So that's when I got to do a little bit of Costa Rican sign language and Spanish sign language. And you can probably guess that some of the purpose of that research was to show people, look, these languages all exist in Spanish-speaking environments, but they're very, very different from each other. So that was one of the main purposes of that. I'd love to know more about some of those differences, because for a lot of us, we kind of understand what the differences are between dialects and accents and things, because they're, they're things that we encounter on a regular basis, but we don't have quite the same exposure to different sign languages. So what do things like accent and dialects look like with sign languages? Oh, man, that's that's one of my favorite things about sign languages, actually, that they do exhibit a lot of these same features that you wouldn't guess they necessarily would exhibit, like accents. Um, it really shows you what is universal about language and not, what's not restricted to sound necessarily. So um, to take as an example, American Sign Language and British Sign Language, these are actually completely different languages. They're, they have very different grammars. They have very different structures, um, but they also have a very different accent. And one way that you can see that accent, uh, the most salient way to me is that American Sign Language is very... It, it's very single hand focused. So not all the time, but a lot of the signs are a single hand um, or there's a dominant hand and a passive hand. Um, whereas BSL has a lot more of two hands going on. So especially in signing of the alphabet, um, I don't know the alphabet myself. I don't know, maybe Shannon knows it. But if you see someone spelling in British Sign Language, um, you'll see the use of both hands as they're doing the spelling. Whereas in American Sign Language, you'll just see one hand. So that's one really immediately salient feature that you can recognize, even if you don't know the language, 
you can sort of see it from afar and guess, oh, that might be a language that's related to BSL if that's not BSL. Um, and one way that it became really salient to me as well is when I first started learning sign languages, I got to the point where I could communicate pretty well and I could be understood, but I just felt so awkward. My hands just didn't, they didn't look as beautiful as the hands of native signers. And I couldn't put my finger on what exactly that was. Was it my rhythm? Was it my use of space? Um, but there was just something really obvious when I signed that I was not a native speaker. And so that was some, what I considered to be my accent, my non-native accent when I'm signing. And you've gotten to use a lot of these languages in the places that you've gone to and they've influenced where you've ended up living. So uh, how has that developed itself? Yeah, definitely. Um, the languages have informed where I live and vice versa, for sure. I've done a lot of traveling and um, moving around for the last decade. Um, well, I guess I could start with Korea. I moved to Korea about eight years ago. I lived there for six years. And in that case, I actually hadn't, I ended up there kind of by accident. I hadn't been meaning to move there. And I actually tried to resist learning Korean because I was in Chinese mode. I was really trying to improve my Chinese at that time. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to be here for a little bit, maybe a year max, and then I'll move on to China. So I'm not going to invest too much in Korean. So that was my first experience of living in a country where I really didn't know the language. Um, and that was kind of a fun an interesting experience for about one month before I totally caved and started learning the language because you, know, you can't be a linguist and learn in Korea, live in Korea and not want to learn Korean. So, um, so I started learning Korean there from scratch and it was just really incredible to get that experience of learning a language that I'd heard so much about in my linguistic studies. And it's just such a cool language structurally. It has such a crazy grammar. Um, and then to live that and to learn it while I was there and having these immersion experiences. And then from there, after about six years in Korea, I finally made it to China. So it was a long, long detour on my way to China. And when I got to China, I finally got to a country where I had been studying the language for a really long time. So now it's been probably 12 to 15 years that I've been studying Mandarin. Um, so it was a completely different experience because, I mean, as soon as I landed in China, I felt this huge sort of weight off my shoulders. I could finally communicate with people naturally. I could have very, very fluent and, and comfortable conversations with people. Um, and that's been really cool, too, because I have so much more access here to learning about the culture because my language is so much more comfortable. So it's no longer like, can I just managed to buy contact lenses today. Like I have an hour. Is this going to be linguistically possible? It's no longer about that, but it's really about what can I, what can I really learn from every interaction that I have and, and how can I make the most of my experience here in China? And in China, I mean, you know, these are special times uh, this year. Of course, we're dealing with this pandemic and it's hard to travel as we were just talking about. Um, so I'm not leaving the country anytime soon, but one incredible thing about being, you know, so-called stuck in a country like China is that it's so multilingual and, and the different languages that are spoken in China are from vastly different language families. So that's not something that a lot of people understand. They know that there's Mandarin and there's Cantonese, but they might not realize that there's languages like Mongolian or Tibetan or Uyghur that are totally, totally different from Mandarin and have very different grammars. So I feel like this is the best country to be stuck in these days. There's so many languages that I can, that I can learn. So I want to ask you a question, given that you've studied languages both as an independent learner and academically, because 
I feel like the words polyglot and linguist often get used quite interchangeably and they are definitely not the same thing. So what is the differentiating factor between the two for you being both? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that um, because I feel pretty strongly that the word linguist um, is open to anyone. Um, so I call myself a linguist because I did major in linguistics and I did academic work in linguistics, but um, I'm completely 100% fine with anyone who has a passion for languages that devotes time to learning languages, calling themselves a linguist. And I think one reason why I'm really, really steeped in that mindset is that actually the industry that I work in, um, my company is a company that works in translation technology. So my industry actually calls anyone that works with languages, calls them a linguist. So the general word that we use for our vendor or for our supplier tends to be linguist. Um, that's the way that we categorize translators, interpreters, phoneticians, um, all those, they all go into the same bucket of linguist. So, and very often that linguist is someone who maybe hasn't even trained in translation or hasn't trained in anything linguistically, but has a language skill that can help contribute to our development of technology. So, you know, and that I think really highlights the fact that everyone has something to contribute when it comes to their language skills, whether or not they have a PhD in linguistics. So, so I feel really strongly that anyone should be able to call themselves a linguist. And uh, like you were saying, you had a chance to uh, learn all these other local languages, like the likes of Mongolian. And I've seen you uh, share on Instagram some of your discoveries there. And how, how does somebody go about learning a language like that that has... Uh, typically less resources than a bigger language like Chinese or, or Spanish or something? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's definitely a challenge that I've, I've worked on a lot over the last uh, 10 years as I've discovered languages that I was really interested in and didn't have a lot of resources for. Um, once again, studying linguistics really helped me with this. There is a concept uh, in linguistics called a Swadesh list which is a, a basically a list of the most important words that you're going to need to be able to understand the structure of a language. So it's sort of similar to, I think, the, the Pareto principle, or there's, there's many different um, principles that speak to the efficiency of focusing on a small subset of words in order to get the maximum efficiency. But the Swadesh list is not just about vocabulary, but also about grammatical structures. So you basically have a list that is designed to elicit the most important and the most frequently occurring grammatical structures, as well as the vocabulary that you're going to need. And I've basically created my own personal Swadesh list that's going to make sure to get me the most important grammar, which usually is not necessarily the future and the past, because I can communicate fine in the present. People will know what I'm saying. Um, but there are certain issues like actually honorifics or formality is usually a lot more important than knowing the future or the past in many languages, because if you aren't going to say a lot of things right, then you better at least hope that you're not offending anyone and that they understand that you come to them with a lot of respect. Um, and there are structures that you know prioritize the kinds of topics that I'm going to need to talk about. So obviously, people are going to be wondering, why are you even learning our language? Because not a lot of people are learning it. I'm going to have to be able to describe that. Um, sometimes there's a little bit of distrust, you know, depending on the, the, the environment that you're in and how are you going to break over that, break those barriers and how are you going to win their trust, you need to be able to have the language that's necessary for that. So I have my personalized Swadesh list and I just go in there and basically, often what I'll do is I'll try to find someone online that can basically work through that Swadesh list with me. 
as a tutor. And we'll just go through and translate each sentence. And I'll, you know, push back on every sentence and make sure that I really am getting the translation that has the nuance that I need. And then I'll go into the community with that Swadesh list and just you know, try it out wherever I can. And um, try not to, I do want to emphasize that I try very hard not to use people as language learning tools. So I'm very mindful of not just wanting to go up to anyone and say, practice your language with me, you know. Um, but I do find that there are certain, there are always members of the community that are really happy to have someone to chat with, you know, especially members of the community that are often um, the elderly that are sitting around in park benches and they just want to have a conversation with someone. Um, you know, you can always find someone that is interested in having a new experience. So as long as you're mindful about not pushing yourself on, on people, um, it can be a really incredible experience. Given that you've learned quite a number of languages at this point, what is your decision process when you're determining whether you want to take on a new language or continue to focus on the languages that you've already studied? Mm, that's such a great question. And I'm so glad you asked that because I think when Benny invited me to be on this podcast, I was thinking, what is the most important message that I want to get out to this audience? And I feel like that message is that you shouldn't ever hold yourself back from learning a language just because you're not going to reach fluency or just because you think you're not going to reach fluency. Um, I've gotten so much out of my language learning when I've just dabbled and when I've just learned a little bit of a language, it's given me so much insight and so much empathy for these cultures and these different ways of thinking. It helps me to be strategic. It helps me to extrapolate those ways of thinking to into my business or into other parts of my personal life. It helps me sort of, you know, in many cases, it helps me hack my life. I learned a lot of really important strategic perspectives from them that I can then apply to my own life. So I try not to hold myself back um, from taking on too much necessarily. Um, if I think that I'm going to get something out of learning a little bit of a language, and if I think I'm going to get joy, most importantly, out of learning a little bit of that language, then I go ahead. Um, that said, you know, I try to be very mindful about what my goals are with these languages. And I do want to gain, um, I do want to get benefits wherever I can. I do want to learn as much and, and apply that to my life. And so I have had phases in my life, for example, in 2020, my main goal was just get better at Mandarin. Stop messing around with these other languages. Focus only on Mandarin. You need to get to the highest level if you're living in China. So that year, I was very mindful of not letting myself get distracted by other languages. Um, I really just focused on that one goal. I set myself a clear goal of passing the HSK 6, which is not really a test that I need for any purposes, but I knew that if I could pass the HSK 6, that would mean that I would have improved in my reading and writing. So I set that goal for myself and I only studied for that test and I took the test and thankfully somehow I managed to pass the test. And, uh, and but then of course, after that year, I'm now in sort of, um, my, my chains have been removed and I'm, I'm binging a little bit on, on enjoying just a little bit of lots of different languages. So I guess my, my answer to how, how I make that choice is that I, that I don't, if, if I'm going to find joy in learning a language, I, I let myself find joy in it. And another thing that you're passionate about is the uh, intersection of language acquisition and language technologies. Can you tell us a bit about your passion there? Sure. Yeah. So language technology in general is um, I came to it via my company, uh, Meridian Linguistics. So we started as a translation company and over the years sort of ended up veering more into translation technology and language technology. 
And what we do is we help other companies build multilingual language technology by providing them with the training data that they need. So often that data comes from translation, which is how we got there. Often it's transcription, sometimes it's linguistic annotations, parts of speech tagging, um, but we provide companies with the data to create the technology that they need. Um, on the side of that, on the side of that day job, you might say, um, I really enjoy language learning and creating content about language learning and having brand partnerships that will help other people learn more about the products that are out there. So I'm also very interested in the technology that is on the language learning side. Um, yeah, that's, that's, it's definitely a huge passion of mine. How do you balance running your own business and learning languages? Well, I'm incredibly lucky that my business is conducive to learning languages and that um, I don't have the time myself to do any translation these days. Um, I, I started as a translation, uh, as a freelance translator, and the business kind of grew out of that. Um, very quickly got to the point where I was running the business and I didn't have time to actually do the freelance translation. But that doesn't mean that I don't still have access to seeing what's happening, all the translations that are coming across my desk, all the translations that are being requested. Um, it's been so exciting to sort of see patterns in, in the data of which languages are being requested and what they're being requested for. Um, so it's definitely helped me gain exposure to the languages of the world. My favorite thing is when I get, when our company gets a, a request for a language that I'd never heard before, and then I have to go scrambling to, to look up the Wikipedia page and learn, okay, well, what are we going to do about the dialects? Do we need to find someone from this region or that region and learn a lot about the sociolinguistics of the language? So that's been, that's been really incredibly useful. Um, just time-wise, I guess I've, I've definitely learned that you expand or contract to your priorities, essentially. So if my priority is to get better at Chinese and if I set myself a clear goal, then even when I'm incredibly busy, I can find a way to make that happen. Um, but, you, but it really does have to be an important priority. Um, if you just have a, an unclear goal, like, you know, get better at Korean, but you don't really have a set concrete item that you're trying to reach, um, then it probably won't happen if you're busy because some other more urgent task will always come in and, and take the place of that. And as you said, you you started off as a freelance translator, but you've expanded into this, this business. So obviously you've had to hire other people from other cultures if they're going to be able to process other languages. So your experiences with travel and living abroad have come handy in that sense too. And how is how is that experience being growing your own business, but like in an international way with so many people from different countries? Oh, it's been, yeah, that's been an incredible experience. I've learned so much about communication when it's divorced from language. So our team are mostly not native English speakers. Um, they all speak a range of languages. They, we have a Russian speaker, French speaker, um, Korean speakers. Um, they're all incredibly fluent and proficient in English, even at a professional level. But I've also learned how much of communication is not actually language, especially when you're doing something as high pressure as running a startup business. Um, when you're dealing with a lot of rush deadlines and you're constantly learning from each other, you all have complementary skill sets. Um, there, you have to be very, very mindful of the way that you communicate culturally even if you all understand technically the same language. So that's been really useful for me to learn that. Um, obviously, different cultures take feedback in very different ways. Um, so there's different, definitely very uh, a, a lot that I've learned in terms of how to provide feedback and receive feedback um, in direct or indirect ways. Um, 
And yeah, I'm working with this team of linguists, of freelance linguists. So we have a smaller team of managers, but we work with thousands of linguists that are living in cultures all over the world. And in general, I think everyone here can probably relate to what it's like to work with freelancers. And maybe most of us have, I've been a freelancer in a past life as well. It's a very different kind of employment relationship or a contractual relationship that requires a lot of nuance if you want to both have a mutually beneficial experience. And if you add in a layer of working with people in other countries, it's so, so important to um, create a way to communicate with them that is mindful of the fact that you can't just take language for granted. And you can't just assume that because they're saying a sentence to you, that sentence is the full truth and the only truth and the useful truth. So um, that's, I think, been the most useful lesson for me is to not assume that I understand what someone's saying just because we both speak the same language. I want to take it back to technology a little bit. What would you say is the number one technology tool in particular that you have found has helped you the most in your language studies? So I've really enjoyed, um, this is just a little thing, but I really like the the Tempo app. It's, uh, I think it's, it might be for both Android and iPhone. I'm not sure. I use it mostly on my Android. But that app allows me to listen to audio and slow it down without altering the pitch. And I think there's probably many other technologies now that will do that. Um, but this one's pretty easy to use. And I use this with my, um, my monologue method for language learning, which is basically, uh, I like to memorize short monologues that are going to be useful for me. And those monologues will include certain grammatical patterns that maybe are particularly difficult to think of on the fly. Um, they'll include a lot of information that I'm tending to use a lot in my daily life. And I'll basically work with a native speaker to put together this monologue. It might be just a self-introduction. And I'll work with them to do it. And then I'll actually ask a native speaker to record it. And I'll put it on my phone. And then I'll just listen to it over and over like the way that you would listen to a song. And after I'm starting to get a little bit more used to it, I'll start singing along with it or you know, speaking along with it. And even if you're really early on in your language learning, and even if you don't necessarily know what each part of that sentence or each part of that monologue means, you'll learn it like a song. You'll learn it as just as this chunk of information. And you can then retrieve that later if, for example you need to say a very similar sentence that just has one word that's different. So maybe your monologue had, I like cats, um, but then you want to say, I like dogs. You already have that grammatical structure drilled into your mind because you've memorized this, this song, this monologue. So that's been incredibly helpful to me. I basically put that audio on my phone. I listen to it with the Tempo app. I slow it down so that it's very slow. Then I start making it faster and faster so that it's more at the normal native pace. And I sing along with that, you know, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months until I feel comfortable with it. And then, you know, if, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I often post these. I haven't done it for about a year now, actually. But in 2020, I was posting a lot of these monologues um, on my stories and on my highlights because additionally, that gives me the extra motivation to really work hard at it. It gives me a little bit of social pressure. Um, I'm, I know that I'll be really embarrassed if I post a, a monologue and it doesn't sound good. And I'll get a lot of feedback on that. So it gives me the extra motivation to um, work really hard and, and practice every day and then post it up and hope that it passes muster. So you're saying earlier that in your case, uh, the background in linguistics and knowing the, the syntax and the terminology 
has helped you quite a lot. But and you've gone from like absolute basic Chinese all the way up to HSK six. So what would you what would your advice be for somebody who maybe has not had access to learning all that syntax and they'd like to learn a language like Chinese? Because I know you've gotten into all these other languages, but for the moment, for a lot of people, Chinese can still feel like it's too hard a language. So what kind of words of encouragement would you give to people? Yeah, I would definitely recommend for Chinese that you don't be afraid of rote learning. Um, this is something as an American, Americans are very much against rote learning. And I think it's very goes against the way that we are taught learning is supposed to happen. We are taught that learning is supposed to be creative. It's supposed to be productive. Um, and I remember when I showed up to my first Chinese class in university, the teacher had us memorizing these monologues. So you'll be laughing if you, you know, if you heard the last five minutes of what I was talking about with my monologue method, but the beginning of every chapter would have a short monologue that we would have to memorize and present to the class. And I hated this. I thought it was so useless that we were memorizing these monologues. We didn't even know what half the words meant. Um, it was so annoying to have to memorize it. It's embarrassing to have to present it to the class. Um, and I just thought, oh, this is so Chinese. This is so indicative of a of a inefficient learning system. And then, you know, about four monologues in, I realized, oh, actually, these words are starting to roll off my tongue. The the tones are starting to sound natural. And I realized, oh, this I'm drilling this language just the way that I would any physical activity or just the way that I learned piano. You have to practice your scales. There's a real learning part of any skill acquisition that you have to, you just have to do it. You have to do your reps in order to get there. So especially for a language like Chinese, especially because of um, maybe unexpected syntax or definitely unexpected tones, I really recommend memorizing short chunks until you can get to the point where your analysis or any your analytical skills can catch up. So I definitely recommend memorizing short chunks and drilling them as much as possible um, the monologue method really, really helps. And another tool that I can recommend that I think many of the, your listeners will probably already be familiar with is Glossica. I think that's helped me a lot with, with um, tonal languages. I've also used it for Vietnamese and for Cantonese. And the, the basic premise of Glossica is that you need to do your reps. You basically drill these sentences that have specific patterns that are grammar patterns or maybe tonal patterns. They're very carefully curated for that. Um, and, you know, apologize to, to Mr. Campbell, but it's incredibly boring and painful, but it's so effective. So, you know, just like with any exercise, um, you have to be aware that it's going to take a lot of work to put in to get that done. But you'll really, really feel the results if you do your reps. So one thing that I do that really helps me stay accountable when I use Glossica is I'll actually just hire a tutor or a language partner to sit with me while I do it. And I tell them, listen, this is going to be incredibly boring. You can do your dishes at the same time and listen to me. I really just need you to show up so that I stay accountable and then I actually do my reps. Uh, and then maybe or maybe I'll do it on the treadmill or do it while I'm doing something else. But if you stick with it, it's, it's incredibly effective. So other than maybe having a tutor listen to you or combining it with something like fitness, what are some of the other things that you do to kind of combat some of the more boring or, or repetitive aspects of language learning so that you can study consistently. Yeah, I think you, it's always important to have some kind of some kind of trick to get yourself uh, motivated to build a habit. And uh, sometimes I guess I like to bribe myself to study. That's a hashtag that I'm using on Instagram a lot. Um, when I realize that something's really hard to get into my habit stacking or there's something that's 
really not fitting into my schedule well. I'll try to find some other way to make it joyful. And I really enjoy and I'm very lucky that right now it's, it's safe to go out to cafes. So I'll often go out to a cafe and I'll bring my notebook and I'll have some you know, pretty pens. And it, it takes time away from your studying to take the time to make your notes pretty. And I definitely don't think that everyone needs to make their notes pretty. But the aesthetic joy that you can get from being that creative and, and making a pretty picture and then taking a picture and putting it on Instagram. Um, it might sound a little bit flighty, but it actually, um, you know, I look forward to doing that every day. And then when I do that, it, it helps me to, to, to strengthen that habit and to make sure that I'm showing up and doing it. So yeah, if it's a grammar thing, that's really boring, then try to try to stack it or try to pair it with another habit that is uh, a little more fun or a little bit more joyful or any other habit that you know it's going to happen anyway. So you might as well, um, you know, stack it onto that so that you never forget. And you were saying that initially you were uh, kind of against the idea of rote learning and it's kind of this culture clash of, like you said, Americans have this view of maybe the Chinese, that's all they do is rote learning. So you've obviously seen the benefit in that. And I'm curious, what other uh, like somewhat stereotypical things have you found to actually be a benefit or to just not be true at all as you've grown to to live in China so long? Oh man, there's, there's so many, so many lessons that I've learned now from living in China and living in Korea. Um, i trying to think of something that's particularly helped me with my life. Uh, I guess one of the most important things that I've learned, and maybe this is not super satisfying, but is that it's really hard to identify what constitutes a cultural difference when you're living in a country that is so multifaceted. And I've really learned to, um, I guess, expand my understanding of what is going to be considered a cultural difference and to realize that there are such nuanced um, manifestations of what counts as culture. I think I had a really interesting experience when I was taking a, a Korean class in Seoul and it was me and uh, another woman that was from Ohio and then a Thai woman, I think two Filipino women, an older Japanese woman, uh, I think a British man. And a lot of our class ended up being talking about what, how do you approach this situation in your culture? Like how would an American react to this? How would a Thai react to this? And I remember that on so many of the questions, I would say, oh, an American react would react this way or oh, rent is higher in this situation. Oh, I would respond to an older person in this way. And the woman next to me who was from Ohio would say, what are you talking about? That's not, that's not how Americans react. And the fact that I mean, we were both women, we're both from, it's not like we're from drastically different socioeconomic backgrounds, but we already had such different experiences and such different understandings of what it meant to be American that I realized, oh, wow, when I, when I try to tell people what constitutes Chinese culture, what constitutes Korean culture, um, there are so many other different experiences, lived experiences, whether it's a woman in Korea, a man in Korea, an older person, a person from a certain background. Um, it's so hard to put your finger on what constitutes Chinese culture and what constitutes Korean culture. So I think the most important thing that I learned was, was yeah, to just appreciate that, that it's so multifaceted and so variable. You have given talks on extreme language learning. So tell us a little bit about what extreme language learning is. So yeah, I call it extreme language learning just because it involves often learning so many different languages or learning them in such a short, uh, 
crash period of time. Um, mostly what I do these talks for is in order to basically show people that it's possible to get a lot of enjoyment and a lot of um, benefit from just learning a little bit of a language. And I tend to get hired by companies that um, often their co-working spaces or maybe their companies or corporations that operate internationally. And they need to give their employees a little bit more confidence when it comes to approaching the task of language learning. I think generally statistics show that uh, companies do not have a very good track record of helping their employees learn new languages, even when they move them abroad, even when they have endless resources. Um, it's really hard to help employees get over that initial hump and that can really affect their quality of life if they're an expat abroad or if they're bringing in people from other countries that need to learn how to assimilate or not assimilate, but so they get along in a new culture, uh, giving them that ability to learn a new language and giving them the confidence can really help not just with their quality of life, but also their productivity as employees, right? So they'll often hire me to come and talk about my experiences learning languages to essentially give them the confidence that they need. And I think the most important lessons that I try to get across to these audiences are that there's a very simple you know, toolkit. There's uh, many tools out there that, that help you to make your learning very efficient. There's a clear way that you can set your goals so that you're actually making progress on, on those languages. And also, look how fun it is. Look how much you can get out of it, even if you don't reach fluency. You know, I know that you're working nine to nine at Samsung and that you have a crazy job and that you're going to miss half of your lessons. That's okay. You can still get a lot out of the lessons that you do make it to. And here are some examples of what it was like when I spent a week learning Slovak and look at the experiences that I got to get out of that. And here's what I got when I learned Ukrainian. And, you know, I only had two days to, to learn as much Vietnamese as I could, but look at the experience I got out of that. So I think that it's really helpful to, to anyone really that just needs the confidence or the extra push to hear, it's okay if you're not going to get to the highest level. It's okay if you're going to be very busy. You're still going to get so much out of just even those two hours that you put into language learning. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear what do you see as your, your future, both in your company and how it might expand and your language learning future. Because like you said, you, you reached this amazing milestone of getting the HSK 6 last year. So like what else is on the horizon for you? Oh, it's, it's so hard to decide, Benny. I'm sure you guys both have the same problem, but I've really been, been tearing my hair out trying to decide what my next goal is. And I think for the last few months, I've basically just let myself binge and just learn as many, as much as I want to of a lot of different languages and kind of get a sense of what I want my next goal to be. I think that I really should focus on Korean. That should really be my next goal. And that's a language that oh, I studied for six years and really had trouble getting traction on, partially because I, I kept getting distracted by other languages. And I went off to Indonesia for quite a bit and started focusing on Indonesian halfway through. But Korean is such a cool language as a linguist. The grammar is so, so interesting. The culture is so incredible. I feel like when I was living in Korea, I learned so much about different ways that you can see the world and the ways that you can interact with the world that are more productive than maybe the ways that I had or a lot of the habits that I'd accumulated growing up in, in my culture. So that's definitely something that I'd like to pursue more. So I think I will be finding some kind of excuse to level up my Korean. Um, maybe that's uh, studying for some kind of test or having some other kind of goal that I need to set. Um, and then, but I think I'll also let myself just enjoy a lot of these languages that are here in China that are also so interesting and 
carry such incredible and such interesting, rich cultural backgrounds. And one of the questions that we always like to ask our guests, given that this is the language hacking podcast, is what is your definition of language hacking? Hmm. Um, yeah, language hacking, I think, is finding strategies and tools that can help you learn more efficiently so that you're not simply dependent on putting in a lot of time, uh, not just putting in as many hours as you can, but that you're making the most out of those hours. And then you could also say that language hacking is using languages to hack your life, or at least that's my interpretation of it, is that with every language you learn, I think I saw, I wish I could give credit to the person who said this because I saw it somewhere on Twitter, but, um, and hopefully some, one of your listeners can write in and, and attribute it properly. Someone said that learning languages are like the expansion packs for life, that every language you learn gives you this sort of cheat code into accessing life in a much more rich way. And that really, really resonated with me because it's so true. You learn a little bit of Vietnamese and then you have an interaction with a Vietnamese person and that interaction is suddenly so full of so much more color and richness um, because you understand a lot of where they're coming from and you'll understand a lot of what you know their their culture is like. So I think that through learning languages, you can really hack a lot about your everyday experience in life and make it so much more richer and so much more productive. Very well said. I agree with that entirely. So thank you so much for coming on today. And people can find in the show notes links to all your social media and your website and everything else. And uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. So thank you for, uh, for today's chat. And I will wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. So fun. Thanks for having me. At the end of each episode, Benny and I like to share something that we took away from our conversation with our guest. And these are tips or tricks or hacks that you can implement into your own language learning. And these are takeaways that are easy to implement and something that you can try out right after listening to this episode and see how it goes for you over the next few days or over the next week and see if these techniques are something that you yourself would like to make a part of your own language learning routine. So I'm going to start, Benny. I would have to say my takeaway from this episode is her comment on why fluency doesn't need to be the end goal for learning a language. I think that this is something that's really important because it can seem like if you embark on learning a new language, you need to learn all of the language or you need to be fluent in a language. And there's this expectation that learning a language leads to fluency and there's nothing in between. But for me, and I know it's true for you as well, there's all sorts of shades of gray in learning a new language. And it can there can be all sorts of reasons that you learn a language. It could be to enjoy literature in the language. It can be to just get to a conversational level. It can be just a situational fluency, even not necessarily complete fluency in a language. So you do not need to have the end all goal of being fluent. And what your goal is for learning language is very personal to you. And that's up to you to decide. But you shouldn't feel as though you need to meet this expectation of being fluent in a language. So what about you, Benny? What was your takeaway? Well, I, th I thought there were loads of huge nuggets in uh, the call. One of them that uh, stood out to me was something she said earlier. Um, I was surprised when she said this, because generally when we think of uh, somebody who has a background where their family speaks the language, that they have a lot of guilt and they 
feel like it's such a shame, such a terrible thing that they didn't grow up multilingual. And I really like her perspective on this, that uh, she actually sees it as uh, almost an advantage and that she she's actually happy about the fact that she had to struggle later in life to get into language learning because that gave it this completely different perspective for her that she appreciated that struggle that multilinguals just kind of take for granted. And like generally, that's not something we would imagine. We imagine people just wishing they were born multilingual and she could well have been born or like grew up bilingual with her father, but it didn't work out that way. And she still took it upon herself to turn that around and to get to the likes of an HSK-6. It's especially impressive because at the time that she was doing the HSK, the level six was the highest level that you could possibly achieve. And like this is incredibly impressive, but it really plays into the fact that like you were saying, Shannon, uh, she does not obsess over these goals of whether I'm going to reach fluency or not. And uh, her story is very inspirational in that sense that she embraces being a beginner, but she's also had uh, a wide array of, of amazing language achievements. So I think it's something for a lot of people to aspire after. And that's my takeaway. Absolutely. All right. So once again, if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, or if you enjoy the Language Hacking podcast, you can leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. All of the links, resources, and everything else mentioned in this episode are available to you in the show notes. And until the next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.